It is an unfortunate fact that the elderly are taken advantage of every day. While the estate planning and government assistance laws are quite complex and ever-changing, how do you keep track of them all? Through elder law attorney Michael Cohen. He's there for you to answer any of your planning questions in a way that you and your loved ones will easily understand. Mike has devoted his entire career to dutifully informing and protecting our parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, anyone in need. Join us now to learn more about estate planning essentials with Michael Cohen and co-host Don Crawford Jr. Here now are Michael and Don. And I am Don Crawford, Jr., the co-host and very appreciative owner of KAAM Radio, welcome you to another Estate Planning Essentials program, intrepidly seeking to protect your family, your assets, and you. And I say good day to you, Michael Cohen. Good day, Don. How are you? Mighty adequate. Mighty adequate. There's his phrase. He's mighty adequate. I thought you were going to say something like, what do you mean by intrepidly? Did you even know intrepidly was a word? And I was waiting for some kind of comment. I thought it was something from Star Trek or something. I wasn't really sure. <laughs> no, that's what is that? That's the, I don't know what that is. But, <laughs> yes, there you go. Well, intrepid means um, fearless. So we're bravely trying to address all of these issues, uh, assert ourselves, and educate the audience thanks to you and your knowledge of decades and decades of estate planning and government assistance. And today we hope is no exception. And um, you want to address interesting topic. And that is uh, something that I think is very complicated, but needed for a lot of our KWM listeners. And that is the different types of trusts that people will use to take advantage of public benefits. And you said there are five or six of those? Yeah, at least. Um, so I thought uh, we'd just talk about them in generalities. Also, sometimes it might get kind of specific and kind of complicated, like you mentioned. So, um, well, I guess I'll just kind of get, go at it. Okay. So first of all, most people think of the most common type of trust that people think of when they think of the term trust. And remember, there are multitudes of types of trust. So please do not think that there's just one trust out there that maybe uh, the uh, you know these do-it-yourselfers might advertise out there. Uh, there are many, many, many different types of trust for many, many different types of reasons. And it really, it's just different types of trust or different tools in the toolbox as to whatever person's goals might be. So, for example, a revocable living trust is often used to avoid probate, avoid guardianship, have privacy, uh, things like that. It's more difficult to contest, although people can still contest them as well. But the revocable living trust is what most people think of. Uh, but it's generally not used for public benefits. Now, the reason for that is that if you put assets into a revocable trust, which means you could always revoke or amend it, uh, whatever you put in there, well, it counts as an asset for Medicaid, uh, and therefore, uh, and Medicaid, why Medicaid? Medicaid generally, there's well, there's lots of different Medicaid programs, uh, 109 here in Texas, all with their own rules. So it gets kind of that's why it says each of these different types of trust are for different types of issues. Uh, most people use a revocable trust, nothing in connection with Medicaid. There could be some limited circumstances where you could, 
uh, use it, for example, um, if you one thing that's a problem with a replicable trust or Medicaid, a homestead does not count as an asset uh, if you have it in your individual name. If you're single, the equity limit has to be less than $636,000. If you're married, there's no limit. If you put it in a revocable trust, uh, you have changed the nature of that from being non-countable to being countable for Medicaid. So a revocable trust may be good to avoid probate, avoid guardianship, but it may not be good for Medicaid. And Medicaid would help pay for, let's say, long-term care costs or care at home where the government pays for somebody to come to the home. So you'll have to say to the whoever the person is that may have the trust, uh, is this some a goal of yours? Is your goal merely to avoid probate and avoid guardianship, make it easier on the family? If so, the revocable trust may be the answer. Um, if they're married and we think that one person is going to need care, it's generally not the answer because uh, for a couple things, besides the homestead being put in the trust, and you could avoid that in a different way by having a ladybird deed that we've talked about in prior years, um, a deed that you have control of the property and then it could just go to the trust after death. Um, in other words, you're in control of the property and it says after you uh, die, then it goes to the trust. That would be okay because then the home is still in your individual name. Uh, and then it goes to the trust after you die. It avoids Medicaid estate recovery, and it's not in the trust. So that could work. The reason why you would do that also is if you only wanted to, have, let's say, have one person in control, let's say, of the home. Uh, let's say there's four kids, and they don't all agree, and you trust one kid, or maybe one of the kids had credit issues or marital problems or was disabled. So if you had the Lady Birdita into a revocable trust, you could plan for those other bad things that occur by using the trust. But generally, uh, another problem with a revocable trust, if you're married under the Medicaid rules, uh, again, for the long-term care Medicaid rules, that if you you have to transfer assets from the ill spouse to the well spouse within a year. And if you're married, most of these revocable trusts are joint in Texas. Texas is a community property state. Well, Usually, most people's assets are greater than 2000 and if it's a joint trust, then after one year, you would lose eligibility, even if you had eligibility to begin with, because you didn't transfer the assets solely into the name of the well spouse. So I know that gets kind of a lot of different mm -hmm. ifs. So yeah. a revocable trust is generally not used for public benefits planning, but there are some limited circumstances. Most people think of a revocable living trust as the first and maybe only trust that they think of um, because that's what's most well publicized. But there are other types of trust. So I won't go in. I don't know if you have any questions about revocable trust. Revocable trust generally used to avoid probate. No, it's uh, just very interesting that you have to differentiate and make sure that um, if they're going to count it as an asset, that you be prepared for that and the way to do that is to make sure that it's in a revocable trust, which could have adverse effects on the planners. Is that what you're saying, bottom line? The revocable trust generally is good for probate avoidance, avoidance of guardianship, mm -hmm. privacy, and making it easier on the family, amongst other things. Okay. Um, but for Medicaid, yeah. long-term care Medicaid, where the government helps pay for care costs, because most people don't have long-term care insurance, or they don't have adequate income or assets, 
and the cost of care, average cost of care is over $7,000 a month, mm-hmm. um, then a lot of times people seek public benefits to help pay for care costs. Otherwise, all their assets you know, get dissipated for care, especially the longer you live, uh, the more likelihood all your assets to go, you know, go for care, uh, and people are living longer. So irrevocable trust has many purposes, but planning for Medicaid is generally not one of those. Okay, very good. But I will tell you one that will would, um, and that is a there are, uh, for lack of better words, a Medicaid asset protection trust. Now this could be designed in several different ways. Again, Medicaid looks at your assets. Uh, and let's say you're single and you had three hundred thousand dollars, something like that, or four hundred or five. What then? Pick a number. Um, it really wouldn't make that much difference if you're single. You have to get down to two thousand dollars of countable resources before the government will help pay for. Uh, if you're in a facility like a nursing home, or if you're having care at home, where the government pays somebody to come to the home. Well, because they look at your assets. Um, they're, they have also rules that if you transfer assets, they think that you did it on purpose. There are a few limited exceptions. They think you did it on purpose to get the benefits. Okay, I, if I had $100,000, I'm going to give away $100,000 so the next day I could apply for Medicaid. Generally, that doesn't work. Now, there is different Medicaid programs, and actually it would work on a community attendant services program where you know, they uh, give you 15 or 20 hours a week for somebody to come to the home. Uh, so there are, there is a, exceptions to every rule. Again, I told you there's 109 Medicaid programs, each with their own rules. Um, so, but, but on the most common programs, which is the uh, program where, you're, let's say, somebody's in a nursing home, they need skilled care, or they're at home, and the government gives more than 15 or 20 hours, generally 35 or 40 hours, Less medication, um, then then they have these rules regarding you can only have if you're single a limited amount of assets, two thousand dollars. If you're married, it really gets into a lot more complications, and I'm not going to go over those right now because uh, I, I can probably talk uh, for a long, long period of time on that, and it would just be too complicated. This may be too complicated too, for that matter. But so, for if you give away assets, generally. Um, then you, the, the, the thought is you did it on purpose to get eligibility for public benefits if you did it within five years. When I say public benefits, I really mean Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Uh, different rules for VA. For veterans' benefits, it's a three-year look-back period. Uh, we could talk about a veterans' trust in just a minute. Um, so, the, so here, for Medicaid, there's a five-year look-back period. So if you have somebody who was uh, generally, let's say, either having some sort of uh, illness where they think that they may need long-term care, or if you're older, uh, let's say you're 70s or 80s, uh, then a lot of times people want to protect the assets. They would rather, let's say, family have the assets after they die instead of just spending all their money on care costs. So there is a five-year look-back period, uh, but people could put those assets in a certain type of trust and at least in Texas, and the rules change from state to state, you could have it where it's tax neutral. When I say tax neutral, you can design the trust where even though it's an irrevocable trust, so remember uh, we talked initially about revocable trust. Now I'm going to talk about 
a form, and there's many forms, of irrevocable trust. Okay. You could design trust in many different ways. You could say, uh, on an irrevocable trust, it could be an income-only trust. You get the income, but you can't get the principal. So in other words, you could say uh, that you have some control, but there's some things you can't get to. So mm-hmm. even though it's an, and if it's an irrevocable trust, you could design it where even though it's irrevocable, you can make some changes. I know that sounds strange, but uh, so we you could design the trust where for uh, IRS purposes, it's still yours, but for Medicaid purposes, it's not. It's just subject to a five-year look-back period. So when I talk about the tax purposes, I know this gets a little bit complicated. It depends on the way you want to have it done. Uh, do you want to have it a completed gift, uh, maybe, and get the income? Then you may have to do a gift tax return. Uh, that would work, uh, subject to the five-year look-back period, if you are not the beneficiary of the principal of the trust. So the whole idea is that can you get to the money to pay for your own care and then designing the trust in a way where it could be where you don't have the money to get to pay for your own care, but you have elements of control for income tax purposes, estate tax purposes, and step up in basis tax purposes. So in other words, let's say you have this power that says in your trust, And this is all based on the Internal Revenue Code. So you put different provisions on different parts of the Internal Revenue Code into the trust. So let's say that you said, okay, I retain the right in my will to change who my beneficiaries are. Now, if you say that, then it would still be part of your estate for estate tax purposes. Now, how much is the size of an estate tax, at least in Texas, uh, because we follow the feds, $12,060,000. So do you care if it's in your estate? Probably not. Probably not. Most people don't have that large of an estate. And why is it to have it in your estate? Well, let's say you'd put some property into the trust, maybe the family farm or some other property that is appreciated that you certainly don't want to ever have to sell if you needed long-term care benefits. Or maybe it was some stock that's highly appreciated. When you retain some control and it's part of your estate, there's what it's called a step-up in basis. A step-up in basis means that you, that the beneficiary does not have to pay the capital gains tax on the appreciation of the asset that was placed here, in this case, the trust. Because let's say you bought a piece of property or inherited a piece of property that was worth $100,000, that's now worth $500,000. On that $400,000 increase, if I kept it till I till I died and retained some elements of control, then then my beneficiary would not have to pay capital gains tax on that $400,000 appreciation. You know, just like if you have a stock, highest capital gains tax rate is 23.8% when you count the what's called the Medicare surcharge tax. So 400,000 times 23.8%, and you could do the math, and you could see how that would be a substantial tax that we don't want to have to pay. So for step-up pay purposes, uh, you would prefer that the it be part of your estate. So you put language in that Medicaid Asset Protection Trust, although it doesn't have to be just for Medicaid. You, let's say you want to just have to protect assets. If you don't have existing creditors and, and you want to just to protect assets, if it's any type of irrevocable trust that's drawn up properly, there should not you should have immediate credit protection. Wouldn't have a five-year look-back period like you would for Medicaid. And then there's one more thing on this. I know it's kind of complicated, 
but also you want to make sure, besides the fact that it's an incomplete gift because of the elements of control, you want to have the your individual tax rate is generally less than a, an irrevocable trust trust tax rates. In other words, uh, if you had a truly irrevocable trust, generally, depending on the way you structure the trust, uh, that you have no elements of control, the trust tax rate on income that exceeds a little over around between thirteen and fourteen thousand dollars a year is taxed at a thirty-seven percent tax rate, and most individuals' income tax rate is less than that. So you want to design the trust where you have the right to veto, for example, who is the beneficiary of the assets in the trust during your lifetime. When you do that, uh, that's one of many examples. There are other things you could put in the trust. Then that means that it would be taxed to the person who set up the trust as the uh, for the income tax, so it would be a lower tax rate. Now, I know this is all complicated, but basically what I'm saying is you could design a trust. Who do you want to have taxed? The one who sets up the trust? Do you want the trust to be taxed? Or do you want even the beneficiary to be taxed? So there's different language, and you could just put it in based on the Internal Revenue Code, the language that was required to determine who you want to have taxed. You have two tricks for for the Medicaid. Number one, you have a five-year look-back period, and number two, you can't be the beneficiary of the principal. But there's different ways that if the beneficiary doesn't do what you want, you can change who your beneficiaries are. Makes sense. It's fascinating. It's very complicated, but I like that you go deep on all of this because you've got this, you understand it. That's why God made you. You know, I'm going to change your nickname from Mike Cohen to Mike Tyson because you you just lean in and you know how to how to fight this fight and you know how to take a punch in the face and to make certain regardless of what that is that your client is going to be protected at all times if he or she has to endure that kind of hit down the road where someone challenges the plan or someone um, contests something where they didn't get enough money or didn't get money at all. You crossed every T, which I think is wonderful, and um, doesn't mean what you do is perfect or, or that you're perfect, but goodness, if anyone needs at least to have their plan reviewed or create one, uh, they need to talk to Michael Cohen, and the first action they need to take in that regard is to attend his next workshop where it doesn't go deep like this. There aren't this many complicated issues because he goes around the room and asks people questions about their various circumstances. And this doesn't come up near as much or to this degree or this long. But I'm glad you're doing this because, one, it's very complicated. Two, you understand it. And three, the audience can understand as a result the, the depth of your knowledge and how committed and passionate you are about this topic. The next workshop is Tuesday, March the 1st at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. It's online, so you don't have to drive anywhere. You can just attend via Zoom on your computer, even on your cell phone. And um, you can ask Michael a question about your individual circumstances, and he will gladly and expertly answer them. What else goes on at those workshops, Michael? Well, we do ask people what they want to know. I mean, nobody's really said, oh, can you tell me about this type of asset protection trust? Although they may say things, uh, something similar uh, that comes up to where that is an issue. Uh, we ask people what they want to know. A lot of times it's like you said, most people ask simpler questions and about the complications that I've gone through as an examples today. But uh, we ask people what they want to know. Most people say, oh, uh, you know, do I need a will? Do I need a trust? What's the deal with a power of attorney? You never know what they're going to be asking. Uh, it could be about Medicaid. It could be about veterans benefits. 
Uh, it could be uh, any number of things. But, so we never know what the questions are going to be. It could be about proposed tax laws or it could be about changes or it could be about disability or it could be uh, anything. And we just never know what the questions are going to be. Uh, every time we've been doing these workshops for over nine years now, uh, and we do them every two or three weeks, and the every time there's different questions, a lot of them, the questions are, the, are very similar. So we have a, a presentation that, you know, answers the questions that are most frequently asked, uh, just the basics on uh, estate planning essentials. Uh, so we do that, but then we ask people what they want to know, and then we answer during those two, that two-hour free estate planning essentials workshop whatever questions you may have. And if you go to the free estate planning essentials workshop, which you said is on March 1st is our next one. Then we also give a, what we call a free vision meeting where we have the opportunity to look at your stuff even in more de detail. That is either what your goals are or your existing documents are to determine if your goals are being met. And then we just say, here's what your options are. If, if they aren't being met or if they are being met, I'll say, okay, yeah, you got it done and you're in good shape or whatever. So I'll just tell it whatever I see. So, uh, to attend that free estate planning essentials workshop, all you have to do is call 214-720-0102. That's 214-720-0102. Or sign up online at DallasElderLawyer.com. That's Dallas Elder, E-L-D-E-R, Lawyer, L-A-W-Y-E-R.com. Uh, and you'll be a part of a, a group uh, that will be asking questions that you're going to learn something from, even if you didn't ask any questions on your own. The next one, as you said, is March the 1st. And by the way, I know that these topics have been kind of difficult uh, or kind of complicated. And if you wanted to, it's an awful lot in, in a short period of time. Uh, you could always listen to our podcast uh, that we put on our website at DallasElderLawyer.com as well. And it, it is a labyrinth for everybody, except you. You get it, you understand it, and thank God for your expertise in this area, because there are a lot of people, especially those online services that claim they do efficient and comprehensive estate planning, cannot. And then you take that risk, and um, you're, you may suffer the consequences of voting corners, and the heirs may as well. So bear that in mind. Um, speaking of online, again, the workshop is online, so you don't have to go anywhere, and you can do it via Zoom, and you do not have to be seen. You can just listen, too. You know, so if it's a bad hair day, those don't show up uh, in terms of the visual um, or video. You can just do the audio, which is a great thing, too. Learn by hearing yeah, um, have, more than we do yeah, seeing. What's that? Yeah, I was going to say that a lot of times people aren't familiar with Zoom. We had somebody uh, this week that said, I'm a Zoom virgin. And he said, "Don't worry, we'll tell you. How, we'll tell you how how to uh, no longer be a virgin." <laughs> so, <laughs> Funny. Well, that's that's so, good, but they have to learn everything. You know, there's lots of things in life we didn't know. Someone had to teach us before we teach somebody else. So, uh, this would be no exception for some people, and that's understandable. But it's quick, click, and you're there. So, we made sure of that. Michael did, his people did. So, getting into or on the workshop won't be a problem via Zoom. So, Michael, about uh, three minutes left. Regarding these different types of trust and public benefits, do you want to summarize for us at least? 
Yeah, I'm just going to have to summarize because there's too many other things that we probably need a, another show or two to even go through. So I'm going to do real, real briefly. If you have, if you're a veteran or the widow of a wartime veteran, another type of trust is a different form of irrevocable trust where you cannot have the elements of control except for on your homestead. Mm-hmm. There's no transfer penalty, unlike for Medicaid, when you transfer a home because the home didn't count as an asset, at least under the VA rules. However, if you sell the home, becomes cash and you might have too much resources. The limit for VA, by the way, is closer to 140000 uh, as opposed to 2000 for a single person. However, the amount of benefit is less generally than Medicaid. But if you have that irrevocable trust that you put, say, typically put a home in, if you sell the home, then it goes to a different part of the trust, which where you don't have elements of control. Another type of trust besides that is if typically if somebody's under 65 and has and is disabled and wants to get public benefits. So whether they have an inheritance or there's a personal injury accident or something that they're disabled and they need and they want, let's say, Medicaid, there's a way to create a trust without a five-year look-back period where it doesn't count as an asset for that disabled person. And then they could get Medicaid, which is the drugs that are so important for so many people. The bad thing about that is that uh, the government would be a remainder beneficiary to the extent that Medicaid benefits have been advanced uh, if you create your own trust and put your own funds. However, if you're doing it, let's say, for a child uh, and you create it with your own funds uh, or even for a spouse, uh, sometimes we do that in the will, uh, then it's a no-payback provision. So if it's what's called third-party, somebody else's money, then you do not have to have the government as a remainder beneficiary to the extent that Medicaid benefits have been advanced. Now, sometimes people are disabled and they're not on Medicaid. They may be on Social Security disability, uh, and so it, it may not be for uh, – it's not means-tested, so it's not for Medicaid. It's just because the person's disabled. If you do have somebody that's on Social Security disability, which means that they worked and they just became disabled – Another type of trust that sometimes people use, let's say it was a parent, if that child's on Social Security disability, you could do what's called a sole benefits trust, but it has to be what's called actuarially sound. I don't have time to go through that, and I'm going to mention one final trust real quickly, and that is an income-only trust. If your income exceeds the limit, and let's say you go into a nursing home and uh, or that program where they give you 30 or 5, five or 40 hours a week, your income is exceeding the limit, which is presently $2,523. You could do what's called a qualified income trust, previously known as a Miller Trust. This would not work for supplemental security income, however. Lots of different trusts, lots of different types of your situation. Everybody's situation is different. That's why we thought we should go over all the different, some of the different types of trusts, not all the different types of trusts in our limited period of time today. Wonderful, Michael. I've been doing this since 1989, 33 straight years I've been in radio this week. And consequently, I've listened to a lot of talk shows and done a lot of programs with talk show hosts. And um, so many of them are forced to read. I don't need to sit with you and know that you're not reading, uh, that it's from the brain and it's from the heart. And the audience needs to understand that and why the safest route uh, is the next step, and that is to attend your next workshop. So do that once again. Sign up for it. Uh, on March the 1st at 1 o'clock, dial 214-720-0102, or go to DallasElderLawyer.com, DallasElderLawyer.com, for that next estate planning essentials workshop. 
Michael Cohen. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Don. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. A leading estate planner practicing law for decades in Dallas, Texas, Michael Cohen is ready to educate you about the Texas and federal laws. The next step to that end is to attend his next workshop by going to his website, which is DallasElderLawyer.com. That's DallasElderLawyer.com and sign up for that free estate planning essentials workshop. Or you can also call him by dialing 214-720-0102. That's 214-720-0102. A talk show host on KAAM for eight years now, Michael Cohen is the person you want to evaluate what could currently be a rather insufficient estate plan. Make certain that is not the case and that it is created and completed your way by signing up for his next free workshop today.